This is the fifth episode of the second season of our podcast, The Meridian. As so often is the case, we are recording in the Chalier room at Lund Observatory and it is April 1st today. Crossing our local Meridian today, we have a visitor from Uppsala University, Michael Way, a physical scientist who works at the Goddard Institute for Space Studies at NASA. This season, we are also bringing you some field reporting from the Nordic Optical Telescope on La Palma. In this episode, you get to hear about the downtime that Bibi and I actually got to experience and we got to climb up a mountain to actually see the volcano erupting from a distance. But more about that later. The Meridian. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, Nick. Guess what day it is? Mm, is it first of April? It's the first of yes. April. Yes. Oh, oh, April Fools. April Fools. Right. Yeah. So I thought we might have a bit of a banter session about uh, April Fools. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. We can do that. Um. So. Uh, April Fools is a bit special for academic circles, right? It's like yeah. So like we get like a lot of joke articles, like you know, in the news articles sometimes um, papers will publish untrue things. Well, we also do that. We also do that in academic circles as well. Yeah, you're right. Like on archive, yeah. Uh, every April Fools, you have to sort of be a bit, you know, alert on what you're actually reading. Yeah, and it's like for those who don't know what archive is, it's yeah. a database that um, astronomers will sometimes preemptively publish, uh, well, not publish, but will preemptively put their research on when mm. they need to, maybe a time-sensitive result comes out or something like that. And so every day we get updates on Archive with new papers that have been submitted. Mm. And then on April Fool's, sometimes <laughs> you get some pretty cool ones. So, But I guess the good thing with Archive, yeah, before going into the next step here, is yeah. that it's, it's open access, right? Yes. Anyone can sort of put stuff up there which has, it, you know, both good and bad things with it. Uh, as you say, it's not really peer-reviewed, yeah. so it doesn't mean that it's like scientifically stamped in a way. Yeah. But everyone can read it. Yeah, exactly. So, like, you know, that's the thing with like with published papers mm. is you know that they've gone through this process, so you can trust it. While with these archive submissions, you need to be the judge of um, the quality mm. of the science. So, more work on your part, but there's still some benefit doing it that way as well. Mm. Yeah. So, did you see any notable mentions? Uh, quite a bit, actually. People have kept busy, uh, mm-hmm. but I think my favorite one was on the possibility of discovering exoplanets within our solar system. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so they, uh, it's two authors. They talk about that we have sort of an exponential growth of finding exoplanets these days and uh, assuming and sort of extrapolating that we will continue to have this exponential growth, they argue that Within like 120 years time, we will have a very, very high likelihood of finding one in the solar system. <laughs> yeah. Which is quite funny. Um, of course, the assumption that we have an exponential growth or well discovery of uh, exoplanets is not, that's not going to continue on forever. Yeah. And it's not like they're evenly distributed in the galaxy. No, that's uh, true. Yeah. We, we sort of, there's just so many that, that, you know, we're just getting better and better at detecting mm, them, but mm. we will eventually slow down a bit. Mm-hmm. Did um, you see any other? I like there's one that says lava is a candidate for dark matter. So. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> 
for hot dark matter. For hot, yeah, warm. Yeah, warm dark matter. So there are a whole bunch of different kinds of flavors of dark matter. You have cool dark matter, you have fuzzy dark matter, and you also have warm dark matter, I guess. Um, sure. And so this paper, you know, start using the attributes of what is described to be about dark matter and are saying that, hey, lava sort of fits all these quote unquote descriptions of dark, of dark <laughs> matter as well. So, wow. um, yeah, that's so nice. I think that's kind of cool, you know. The idea of lava floating around in space is uh, terrifying and kind of funny at the same time. So I think, yeah. I, yeah. yeah. There's also the, the search for coffee yes. in the universe. I guess yeah. a lot of astronomers like the idea of coffee. Yeah. I'm not a coffee drinker myself, but okay. I think you are. I'm an avid coffee drinker, yeah. yes. I, yeah. I couldn't live without coffee. Um, <laughs> it might be because I'm half Italian, so you know, I got raised mm. on the stuff. But uh, yeah, sure. so I, I well, quite... Well, drink a lot of coffee too. That's true. That mm. is true. That's one of the benefits of me living here is that I get a lot of coffee now. So yeah, but they sort of like took an image of like a, a protoplanetary disk and arguing that it sort of forms the same kind of pattern as a latte. And so... <laughs> <laughs> Like a lot of these have nice uh, fun puns inside them as well. So, yeah, I guess they're, they're very nerdy kind of humor, a nice way to sort of start your Friday morning if you're yeah. um, interested in that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so do you have any like favorites from previous years that might have come up too? Well, uh, there was actually this one uh, where someone claimed that one could look for space vampires with a test telescope. Yeah. And <laughs> can you elaborate? <laughs> yeah. So test the space telescope. It yeah. doesn't have mirror. It has lenses. So as right. such, you could actually look for space vampires because you can't see oh, vampires in mirrors, right? They have reflections. Exactly. Oh, okay. <laughs> I wonder if space vampires are worried now, like, you know. They should a, be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was funny. I think if you're looking at the abstract of that, you know, that they state there's between zero to 100% chance of. Or more. Or more. Of, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of, <laughs> of uh, detecting vampire transits. So, yeah. yeah. No, so, you, yeah, on this day, you sort of have to watch out. Yes. A bit. Yeah. But it's also a lot of fun. Yeah, exactly. I appreciate the people who sort of put some effort of their day into making a fun article. Yeah. Well, so you got to like sometimes see the fun in science too. Yeah. You can't be serious all the time. You know, you got to yeah. make light of it. Sure. Oh, well, I've got an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, how about we play a game? Sure. No, two truths and a lie. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to fool you. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So I'll tell you three potential facts. Two of them will be right. One will be wrong and you pick. So first off, I'm going to, the theme is solar system. So, oh shoot! <laughs> right, so number one, uh, uh-huh. a day on Venus is longer than its year. Mm-hmm. Jupiter's gravitational pull protects us from meteorites, mm-hmm. and Neptune's clouds are pink. Okay, I have to go for the last one. I think because I know for a fact that Ven- a day on Venus is longer than a year, which mm-hmm. is just mind-boggling. But it's mm-hmm. just like the rotation around its axis is so slow. Yeah, uh, and that's a fun fact, right? Mm. And I guess Jupiter's gravitational pull protects us from meteorites. It sounds legit. Mm. I'm like, Neptune's clouds are pink. Aren't they, aren't they like blue? Or we'll have, have, you, have you have you tricked me? <laughs> we'll wait and see. I'll let you know at the end of the episode. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then we have the sun. Mm-hmm. So one, you could fly a spaceship through the sun's upper atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Elements fuse in stars because it's so hot. Or our sun is made up of pieces of other dead stars. Wow. Okay. This is actually kind of tricky. Hmm. So starting from the bottom right, our sun is made of pieces of other dead stars. It's mm-hmm. like the cycle of stars. We have stars going supernova or planetary nebula, and then that's sort of recycled. So 
I would say that's true. Mm. Then elements view stars because it's so hot. It's like, yeah, well, because the gravitational pull downwards makes the pressure outwards and then it's hot. So, um, sure. But then like you can fly spaceships through the sun's atmosphere. It's, uh, thing is, you have now the solar orbiter that was sort of touching the corona of the sun recently. Mm-hmm. And yeah, corona is a word that's been ruined. Yeah, <laughs> Thank yeah. you very much, pandemic. Mm. So... I don't really know, but I, I'm I'm gonna take the first one because I think the other ones are true. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and the last one is space in general. So like you know, I know space. Yes, we don't. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the space between stars is just empty. There's mm-hmm. nothing there. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, the furthest we've ever traveled in space is still in the solar system itself. So we have never gone outside of it. Um, and the last one is most stars and planets that we observe outside of our solar system um, are signals that have been sent over thousands of years ago. Yeah, so of course it's like, when you say several thousands, do you mean several thousands in as actually several thousands? Because of course some are like a hundred light years away. Yeah, but, uh, so th- th- those would be a hundred <laughs> years ago, yeah, sure. Sure, sure. sure, sure. So yep. I would say that's true. Um, and the space between stars is just empty space. There's also... <sighs> It's not just only empty space, but it's mostly empty space. But you also have like molecular gas and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the farthest we've traveled in space is still in the solar system. I don't know actually how far the Voyagers have gone. I think I should know. But um, yeah, I it's, it's good that all of these are tricky. Well, good job, Nick. But I, I'm going to guess that the one, you, the one that is a lie is that the space between stars is just empty space because you're can be some stuff in there okay well i guess we can tune into the end of this episode to see how well you did gosh cliffhanger yeah and now i'd like to welcome to the mic michael way michael welcome hello nick thank you for inviting me oh thank you for coming how are you i'm doing fine i just gave a great talk to your group Yes, we, we all we, we really enjoyed it as well. Um, so how about you tell us a bit about yourself? Well, I grew up in a, what we consider a small town in the United States mm-hmm. called St. Louis, Missouri. It's about around 2 million people or so. And I uh, lived there with my parents, of course. And uh, I went to grade school and high school, just like everybody else does, of course. And then ran off to university, the University of Missouri, and um, did a bachelor's degree in physics. Mm-hmm. And then moved back to St. Louis to to do a master's degree in physics. And then I got this crazy idea to move to Chile. Oh. And I lived in I moved to Chile in 1990, yep. just after the dictatorship ended. And I worked there for two years at the Catholic University of Chile and spent many a night observing at the many observatories in Chile. I moved back to St. Louis and finished my PhD at that time in observational cosmology. Then I did a uh, I got a position at Princeton University mm-hmm. for three years. That takes us to the year 2000. And then I was hired by NASA at their research center uh, called NASA Ames in Silicon Valley. And then after about six years, I moved to the New York branch of, of NASA, which does climate modeling. Okay. And I've been there ever since. Cool. So like, how do you join NASA? Like, how did you end up working there? Well, uh, it just turned out that uh, I had a, kind of an interesting skill set back then. I worked mostly in observational cosmology in the late 
1990s, but I also knew quite a lot about information technology. So I was very good at networking and IT security and helping to set up uh, web servers and all this kind of stuff. So the group at NASA Ames, I knew uh, one of the managers there, and he knew about my skill set. And he said, we really need someone with your science background and your IT background. And so he brought me into his group, and I enjoyed working there for several years. Nice. So, like, what do you like the most about NASA? Like, what's it's a pretty big institution, but, you know, you're the guy on the inside. So what do you think is one of its uh, redeeming qualities of it? That's a good question. I think one of its redeeming qualities is, is uh, well, partly the excitement inside. We're all trying to do the best science that we can. And being the world's largest space agency, there's always fun stuff going on. There's always a new mission going on, new mission ideas, new mission proposals. And we get to participate in that. And we get to learn about it and we get to play a part uh, many times in the, in the formation of these missions. So that's what's really fun about working inside of NASA is seeing how, you know, how the sauce is made, as we say. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then during your talk, you spoke about a few missions that um, NASA has contributed to. Um, do you have a favorite or is there one that you're really excited about? Absolutely, Nick. As you heard in my talk, probably the one I'm the most excited about is the Da Vinci mission, which yep. will be run out of NASA Goddard in Maryland. Mm-hmm. And this mission is going to send a probe into the atmosphere of Venus. And that probe is going to measure the atmosphere constituents at roughly every kilometer as it falls through the atmosphere. And hopefully it's going to tell us a lot more about the history of water on Venus and the history of the planet in general. And this mission is also going to have an imaging camera that comes with it that's going to take pictures of the surface of Venus as it falls through the atmosphere in unprecedented detail in a lot of different, what we call band passes, different fractions of the visible light spectrum okay. and the infrared part of the spectrum. And then that's going to provide the ground truth for two other missions that are being flown around the same time. One by the European Space Agency called Envision, mm-hmm. which is mostly a radar mapper, but it's also going to have an infrared imaging instrument on it. And another mission that's run out of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California called Veritas. Okay. which will also have a different kind of radar and also an infrared imaging camera. Wow. So we're really going to get a chance to actually see what Venus is really like. Yeah. We have had some previous missions like Magellan and Pioneer Venus and, of course, Venus Express, which was run by the European Space Agency. And there's even a mission there now called Akatsuki mm-hmm. that's run by the Japanese Space Agency, which is an orbit around Venus. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, these new missions are really going to open a new window on Venus, I think. Yeah, so do the other planets get the same kind of attention with these space missions? Some other planets do. Okay. So as you might guess, Mars has gotten the most attention from space missions in the last 20 years, Mm -hmm. last 30 years, from NASA and from ESA, of course, and many other nations now are going there. In fact, the Emirates have recently launched even a mission to Mars. Oh, wow. Okay. It's in orbit around the planet now, and the Chinese, of course, are... We're doing the same. So Mars is probably the most explored uh, planet in the solar system. And then, of course, we have Mercury, which has seen a few missions from the Mariner probes and and the Messenger mission. And now there's going to be a new probe going called Pepe Colombo that's been hmm. launched a few years ago by the European Space Agency. And then, of course, we have the outer planet missions. There have been the Voyager probes, which yep. we're all familiar with, that have, have explored uh, Jupiter and Saturn and the Neptune and Uranus. And then, of course, we have also things like Cassini, which has explored the Saturnian system for over a decade until mm. it 
expired a few years ago. And then, of course, Galileo, and now there's the Juno probe. And, of course, there are many more coming down the line, like JUICE and things of that nature. Europa Clipper is going to be coming as well to explore Europa and, of course, the Jupiter system as a whole. So mm. I would say Mars is the most uh, explored planet. And then Venus is, a well, kind of a step cousin in a way. And then it's yep. worse for the rest of the planets. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we are going to learn a lot, but your focus is mainly on Venus, right? Right. How much do we know about Venus and its atmosphere? Like, it seems like it's always a bit of an enigma when it comes to astronomy. Everyone talks about Mars and how big Jupiter is. But yeah, like, what have we learned, I guess, is a, a pretty pretty big question to ask you. But yeah. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, I, I mean, we've learned a lot. I mean, we've learned, for example, that the surface of Venus is only around 750 million years old. Oh, wow. And that probably does sound surprising to many of your listeners because it's been volcanically resurfaced over that time period. And so it's one of the youngest surfaces in the solar system, if you think about it. The surface of Mars is around three to four billion years old. The surface of Mercury is four billion years old. The surface of the moon is mostly four billion years old. Mm -hmm. Of course, Earth is much younger in many ways, but still Venus is unique. So that's something that the Magellan mission and actually the Pioneer Venus radar imaging part of the mission also told us that the surface was quite new in a sense. Right. Um, And so I guess, what can we do with all that information and the data of like this resurfacing? Like it's, it's, I guess it's really cool to learn this stuff, but like how can we learn more about Venus from just this one like snapshot that we're always able to take? We can't learn a lot. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can learn something. I mean, first of all, it provides us a snapshot in time. Yeah. And, and that's very useful because there's a lot of debate in the community, the Venus community today, hmm. whether or not Venus has active volcanism, for example. Right. Or does it have another kind of plate tectonics, uh, what we call a stagnant lid type plate tectonics? Or is it something in between what we understand as plate tectonics on Earth and what we think of as the lack of plate tectonics on Mars? Right. So the new imaging missions, the new radar missions, Veritas and Envision, are going to be able to probably give us better ideas of, is the surface changing? Is the surface not as static as we're led to believe by looking at Mars, but maybe not quite as active as as Earth's? And is there volcanism still going on on Venus? Because there's real debates about, uh, for example, what, what what's the cause of the sulfuric acid clouds on Venus today? Mm. There are some hypotheses that state that that is because of active volcanism going on that are producing sulfur in the lower atmosphere that's been ejected into the upper atmosphere. And then the atmosphere chemistry creates this sulfuric acid clouds, which are at the top of the atmosphere and affect its reflectivity and other properties of the atmosphere. So we'll probably get a much better understanding of it, at least those physical processes with these new missions in combination with the old missions. Okay, cool. So there's also like a, uh, if you would think of it, the research of Venus is a coin. The other side is obviously you model, you model um, Venus's atmosphere too. Um, and so I guess, what is your, is your goal to try and match what the data that we see, or are you trying to really lead to new insights that we may not have thought of? Um, I guess, yeah, what's the, like, I guess modeling of Venus's atmosphere is kind of crazy to me because it's such a complicated system, but yeah, I guess, what can we learn from modeling? Yeah, I mean, modeling any atmosphere is very difficult. Yeah. Um, my, my The main group that I work with in New York is mostly doing modern Earth climate. So our modeling group has created a general circulation model that models the modern Earth atmosphere and a little bit through time. So a little bit back in time, a little bit forward in time. So maybe you know, a few hundred years back, a few hundred years forward to understand 
uh, the role of climate change on Earth, which of course is a hot topic this, these days. My subgroup is mostly interested in modeling all kinds of planetary atmospheres. Mm -hmm. So we look at modern Mars, ancient Mars, ancient Venus, and of course, hypothetical exoplanetary atmospheres. So yeah, we, we look at all those different processes and they are very complicated and these models are very complex and very hard for a single person to understand. And that's why there are modeling groups. There's not a single person usually wanting, running one of these models. So yeah. we have experts in what we call radiative transfer, which is which means how do photons from the sun get to the surface and what happens to them when they travel through the atmosphere and then back on their way out if they're reflected. We have people that are experts on ocean dynamics. We have people that are experts on cloud convection. We have people that are experts on how clouds form uh, from first principles. We have people that are experts on ground hydrology. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so these models are very complex. And yes. you're right. Understanding uh, a complete planetary climate is very difficult. But we've had some model success with Earth. Yeah. And we tried to leverage that success for other worlds. Yeah. Well, uh, I think one of the uh, successes you've had is postulating that Venus could have been habitable um, previously. Um like habitable Venus, like it's you can, it's hot enough to melt lead on the surface of that planet. Like how how did you? Like how can we possibly go from one such extreme to you know like living on sleeping on a, like a, sipping mojitos on a beach or something like that? So um, yeah, like how, how did you manage to find that like, through these models? That's a really good question. So part of it was we were really inspired by a paper that came out of the exoplanetary community. So mm -hmm. there was a parameter study out of the University of Chicago, led by Jun Yang and Dorian Abbott and collaborators, mm -hmm. that showed that for slowly rotating worlds that were Earth-like, that the climate dynamics changed quite drastically because the circulation patterns of the, of the atmosphere itself were quite distinct from those of Earth. Mm -hmm. And what we discovered, and well, what they discovered and what we later confirmed, was that for very slowly rotating worlds, they could be around much brighter stars, in okay. essence. And that's because these worlds that are rotating much more slowly, like Venus does today, could form very, um, well, how do we say it, efficient clouds at what we call the substellar point, the point directly facing the star from the planet. Mm. And those clouds acted as kind of a shield. They are very high reflectivity. And so you could bring a planet like Earth very close in to a place where Venus sits today, which receives twice as much light per square centimeter as Earth receives today hmm. at the orbit of Venus. And then we discovered, and they discovered and confirmed it, that this, this shield is so effective that you can get temperate conditions. Hmm. And so we decided to explore that a little, bit in a, in a, a little bit in a larger parameter study and discovered that indeed it's possible that Venus could have had quite temperate or what we call habitable conditions in its early history. We don't have good constraints on how long that period of habitability would last, but it's a, it's a possibility. Hmm. Like what would have that world look like? Would it have looked like earth or would it be like, obviously you could live on it, but like what if you could maybe imagine um, something like that for the listeners, what, what, what would you think a world like that would look like? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I think because of a lack of imagination, perhaps we think it would be a bit earth-like in yep. a sense that mm -hmm. certainly, uh, you know, 
as I, as I mentioned today in my talk, Earth very early on was probably mostly an ocean world with right. very few exposed continents. So we mm -hmm. could imagine something similar in the early history of Venus where you would have small little islands and but mostly mostly water. And probably, you know, since we have we struggle on Earth to understand where life began, if life began on Venus, it probably would have followed a similar pattern. So I'd like to believe that a temperate Venus would be very similar to Earth, except for one big difference, and that is you would not have any sunny days. Okay. Because you have that big cloud sitting there mm -hmm. protecting you from the sun. You can't have the sun blaring in your face. Otherwise, you're going to get burnt to a crisp. Okay. So it would be overcast at all times, a bit like Sweden. Yeah, so I guess... You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you know, it's quite nice here, even with the rain. So that's uh, I, I could still see myself living on a in a rainy planet. Um, cool. So, um, how did Venus go? If it was a habitable planet, um, how did it become the planet it is today? There had to be some kind of mechanism that drove it to its current situation. Good question. I would say we have few ideas, but we have a few speculations. Okay. And so one speculation we have is that a kind of large-scale volcanism could have occurred that we have seen occur in Earth's past. So yeah. as I mentioned today in my talk, most people think that you know dramatic climate change on Earth, say mass extinction events, are caused by large impactors. Mm -hmm. Because everyone thinks about the dinosaurs. Oh, the dinosaurs were killed by a giant rock. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but the fact is that most mass extinction events on Earth have been caused by volcanism, not yeah. by giant impactors. And in fact, there was a large volcanic event of this kind going on at the time the meteorite hit and killed off oh. most of the non-avian dinosaurs. Yeah. So many people think that this, this large-scale volcanism that was happening was already affecting the ecology of the planet in a serious way, and that this impactor sort of finished things off in a sense. The volcanism started it and the impactor finished it off. Hmm. And so our hypothesis is that these kind of volcanic events could in theory drive a planet from a temperate state into an uninhabitable state. And then okay. if you have multiple such events, these events are, are, are called things like the Siberian traps, which was associated with the end Permian, or the Deccan traps, which are associated with the end Cretaceous and the, and the extinction of the non-avian dinosaurs. So that's one of our hypotheses of the present, that some kind of large-scale volcanism really drove the planet from a temperate state into a hothouse state and gives us some version of what we see today, but but perhaps one or two billion years ago. Okay. Um, so how confident are you in your models? Because um, obviously uh, we, we're putting our assumptions uh, and how we, we think it would look like, but mm. um, yeah, obviously there needs to be some kind of, uh, there is a scientific grounding, but yeah, how, I guess... Yeah, how confident are you without, <laughs> without trying to pad this question so much? Yes. Yeah, you know, that's, that's an excellent question. I would say the, the problem that we have today is that the parameter space is very large. Okay, yeah. And when you have a very large parameter space, you have a lot of room to explore. And so you can make a lot of assumptions because it's very hard to constrain your assumptions. So I'm not, I mean, I, I think that our models could be correct. Mm -hmm. I would say that to constrain our models, first of all, we need to know if the models themselves are correct because they are mere models. Yep. We really need exoplanetary observations that we're going to get in the future to tell us if slowly rotating worlds like Venus 3 billion or 4 billion years ago actually do have this cloud albedo feedback, as we call it, this very bright cloud at the substellar point, right. and whether that can 
can create temperate conditions or not. So we need that kind of data. And we also need this Venus in situ data from Da Vinci, Veritas, and Envision to better characterize the surface, better characterize the atmosphere, and most importantly, to better characterize the history of water on the planet. And that's really the key thing that Da Vinci is going to give us by understanding what this atmosphere is telling us in terms of its atmospheric composition all the way through the column and everything that can be told about the water history related to noble gas isotope abundances and all kinds of technical things, which I'm not going to go into here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, while I'd love to hear about them, I, I'm, I'm sure we can uh, save it for another time. Um, so before we wrap up for today, um, I want to have a bit of a fun question to ask you. Mm. What do you think would be easier to terraform, Venus or Mars? Mars. Mars. And why is that? Well, you have a... 90 bar atmosphere, 90 times the density of Earth's atmosphere on Venus, mm -hmm. made of carbon dioxide, and you have to put it somewhere. Mm. It's very hard to put it somewhere. The other thing is that Venus is extremely dry. There's very little water vapor in this atmosphere. So you have to get rid of this carbon dioxide atmosphere somehow, mm -hmm. in some way. Either you have to tie it up into rocks, yep. like we have on Earth over the last billion, you know, billions of years, or you have to move it away. And then you have to bring water to the planet somehow because humans need water. Yeah. So that means you have to drag an asteroid out from the asteroid belt or something from the outer solar system in to bring water. That's at least one of the crazier hypotheses. Yeah. Whereas with Mars, well, you need to somehow create a bit more of an atmosphere that is challenging, but it also has water on the surface. So terraforming can also mean different things to different people. You could have Mars bases, right, mm -hmm. where you kind of have a bubble and you're protected from the very thin atmosphere and maybe some of the UV radiation that you experience there. But then you also have the water there. So Mars is so much easier in many ways. That's why people like Elon Musk and company like this idea of a refuge from yeah. Earth. Okay. Well, it's good to hear an expert's opinion on that matter too. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on to the Meridian, Michael. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. Um, and I really wish you luck with the best of your, uh, with the rest of your research. Thank you so much, Nick. I really enjoyed our chat. Thank you. many types of astronomers. Some are observers, like myself, while others are more theoretical. Some dig through old archives and catalogs searching for new clues, while others think ahead, designing new methods, instruments or missions that will take many years before resulting in any data or answers. And some also produce podcasts. And then there are those of us who apply for time on telescopes, hoping to go observing for ourselves. In the fall of 2021, a team of astronomers from Lund Observatory headed to the Nordic Optical Telescope in La Palma to try to get observations of ultra-hot Jupiters. One of the observers on the team was our very own Nick Borsado, who recorded the entire adventure. If you've been following this season, you'll know that getting there was not easy. The erupting volcano had closed the airport, so the team landed on Tenerife and had to sail the rest of the way to La Palma. The team has had to deal with both ash raining onto the observatory and earthquakes. As we catch up with them now, it's their seventh day in La Palma, and they're patiently waiting for the exoplanet to transit in front of its start. Hey, Nick Posado again. 
Today is day seven on the mountain, and well, not too much has happened since our last entry. Our next observing night is tomorrow. Most of the week had cloud cover, but as I look out my window now, the skies are once again clear. So fingers crossed it stays that way, and the volcano behaves itself. Speaking of, if you explore the mountain ranges well enough, you can get some spectacular views of the volcano. At night, you just see lava spurting out of the mountain, forming these glowing orange trails that head out to sea. While I might be a little annoyed that it's ruining my data, it isn't lost on me that this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and I am lucky to be a part of it. This entry is going to be more about what it's like when an astronomer has some downtime in a remote location like La Palma. And as always, Bibi is here to help me out as well. Hey Bibi. Hey Nick. How are you going? I'm very good, thanks. I think I'm doing a lot better than since our last entry. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm better. I think a bit of time away from it um, was good, and uh, we'll get into it a little bit later. But I had a couple of talks with different people in our group, and I'm feeling a lot better. Um, and it's been not nice, but it's been a little bit cloudy on the mountain um, recently. Mm-hmm. So there are other astronomers who haven't been able to observe. And while I'm definitely not happy that they couldn't get the data that they wanted, it's I guess it gave me empathy um, to sort of see mm-hmm. that we all go through this stuff as well. And we have a lot of puffy clouds. Yes, the clouds are really puffy and really beautiful. Yeah. But um, what have you been up to this week? Oh, quite a lot of stuff, actually. I've been sitting in a lot of meetings. So I had some research-related things as giving presentations. Mm-hmm. So I gave one presentation at the Astronom Dagana. Yep. And that was like only an eight-minute presentation. So it was really just shooting out what you had in, in mind and then done. So that was very interesting. And then I also gave a presentation during a course. Yep. And it was also a very short one. Yes. It was very nice. So, yes. And then I had some student representation meetings. Yep. Where I discussed with people from, from the faculty about education and also with uh, other people about how we sort of structure our PhDs in view of sort of a tiny contract thingy. Yeah. So that was very interesting. And then last but not least, I actually worked on a resubmission for my first paper. So this is going to happen soon. That's cool. So I guess going to your second point, you're a student representative. So is that something you really feel strongly about? Like you want to, yeah. What what draws you to um, doing stuff like that? I guess for me, the the most important point in, in my career was probably my second semester back in my bachelor's, so a really long time ago, um, when I really had a lot of struggles with my studies and then the people from the student union there uh, back in Zurich were just like my second family. So for me, this has always been a part of me that I really want to uh, stand for people's opinions for, yeah, that they really feel their very best in their their studies. Yeah. It's something I've just carried on. And also when I arrived here, I remember Brian telling me, oh, I'm so going to jinx it. You're so going to do that. And I was like, nah, never, (laughs) Brian. I've done that in my career already. I don't have to do that. And now here I am again. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of like there's like a force sort of driving you to do that. Yeah. Because like I I do some work for the student unions as well. Um, Not nearly as much as you do. Um, But I guess... Um, the equivalent for that for me is education like yeah. and I and I sort of have a very similar drive is that like I ask a lot of people in the department I probably teach too much because um, mm-hmm. I always put my hand up for the, a course whenever there's an opening for it um, it's because I love to teach but I guess well I, I teach students back in Australia as well I that's one of the things that I had to deal with is the time zone so I have to get <laughs> up even earlier so it's, it's like 
Six o'clock starts for me um, every night. Um, there was actually I had to reschedule two of my lessons because it was the night after, you know, all hell break loose. And, you know, I was getting depressed from the fact that the data and I had two lessons to teach it. Uh, at six in the morning and I was getting to bed at three and I just had to tell them that I could and we had to reschedule yeah. but um That's I time zones for you yeah yeah exactly I guess I also struggled quite a lot in my undergrad um yeah. and um maybe it might have been the different context there's not many student there isn't a student union in most Australian mm. universities um and so maybe what happened was you're mo- you're motivated by creating institutions that can help effect change, I was motivated by developing my own teacher skills, teaching skills so that when I was in that mm. position, I'd never make a student feel inadequate. Um, yeah. Not that a lot of my lecturers did. There were some really great ones at my old university, but um, I don't know. I feel whenever I teach that I have an obligation to my students to make sure that absolutely, they really yeah. understand and feel like they come. I share this view, absolutely. Yeah. So um, it's cool that we're, we're still able to do that even up still high attitude. But also you have a paper coming out. Yeah. That's super exciting. I'm not really allowed to talk about it. No, no, sorry, we won't talk about it too much. But like, well, we could talk about how does it feel that you're going to... Uh, I, I must say I was really, really lucky. I was working on this data that Jens had taken even before I was starting my PhD. Yeah. And it was just, I guess, also quite lucky the way it came out. So I'm really excited for this to finally go through. We're playing a bit of ping pong with the referee at the yes, moment. Yes, yeah, yeah. I don't know how much I'm allowed to say about that. But yeah. the ping pong process is it's a bit painful. So I'm really hoping this is the last pong. Yeah, I yeah. don't get a ping bag. Yep. Well, like, I, as someone who's seen you work so hard on this, it's uh, I think you'd really deserve to get this publication. So it's been a bit of a wild ride. But, yeah, I fingers crossed. Um, was this, Speaking of papers, because this, this trip was to help me mm-hmm. get a set of data that would help me write my first paper. And obviously now that threw a spanner in the works. But it was interesting, like, talking to both Brian. Well, actually, was had a bit of a rant with Brian over coffee, and Jens was busy um, with a meeting with Ellen, our master's students, who mm-hmm. was here, and he overheard me getting a bit, like, you know, the world sucks and, you know, everything. Yeah. I'll never get the data I want. Um, and so, um, and then Yen's come over. We had a meeting and then um, we've decided to pivot the paper a little bit. So there is some archival data that we have and mm-hmm. there are some really interesting science questions that haven't been explored that won't be reliant on the data that yeah. we have. But if we do get it, we'll be able to boost the paper that's yeah. coming from that. And so I guess that was, a uh, for me, motivating because they still I know that I can still progress forward um, and it's sort of... Yeah, um, and I think it's also a big uh, a big thing about science is that you need to be creative sometimes mm-hmm. in making sure that you can keep progressing forward because life gets in the way. And you sort of have to be spontaneous. You sort of have to be able to change your your projects, or you have to change like the timeline on what 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 you're doing when, in that sense. Because sometimes you don't get your data, sometimes you just have another idea plopping in, and then yeah. you're like, I want to do this now. I cannot spend time on these other projects. Yes, exactly. So I think that that's also something that is the nice part about it, that yeah. we can always find new ideas and new motivation yeah. by just also talking to other people. Yeah, I exactly. think that's really good, and I really hope you're feeling better and you're feeling motivated for, for other projects. I, I definitely am. Um, it always reminds you that like science is a human process. Mm. I think Mikael, actually, in the previous uh, season, um, said that we used to have like people like Einstein and Newton, these um, really intelligent people that created these theories mm-hmm. that become. He's of the mind that that doesn't exist anymore and it's more collaborative research. We've mm-hmm. realised that 
multiple people can do much more than one single person can with an idea. And you realize that when you work together as a team, because sometimes when you're feeling down, you don't work you work that well and it just takes a, a friend that cares about you to have a nice conversation and some coffee and to sort of mm. put you back on your feet. I think one other thing you have been doing and you're really great at is like the science outreach, also <laughs> like with this podcast. It just, it makes me really happy to see that you do that and that you enjoy it so much. Yeah, I don't know. I, I like to talk about science. Um, yeah. I I think we, we're living in a world where a lot of people are skeptical about um, scientists. I think we put them on, we've, scientists get put on pedestals that they sometimes don't deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then when they get things wrong, which they're supposed to be allowed to, well, if they get it, they get everything wrong, everything's, everything sucks, right? Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, you have, you talk about things like anti-vaxxing movements or the climate change denialists, or like even people who don't even think about space junk that's going into this. Um, and you realize that communication to people who aren't scientists is really important because they're the ones that vote. So it does motivate me. And it's also a nice distraction sometimes too. You need to take a break from really just, you know, not a, we don't really work on whiteboards very much, but a break from the office and just, you know, focusing on your data and more on like, you know, interacting with the outside work like you do with your student union and representation stuff as well. But so you're working on this podcast to sort of also do some sort of communication to people that are not in in science itself. But you're yeah. also trying to motivate people to go into science in some sort of sense, right? Yeah. So um, I've actually uh, I'm I guess supervising for high school students, Swedish high school oh, students. Oh wow! Cool. Yeah. So um, our, our university has a small telescope. It's um, about half a meter in its diameter of the mirror. We, we measure telescopes in mirror sizes, if I haven't mentioned that previously. But um, these students had got into contact with me and asked if they wanted to do some exoplanet research. Um, and you can detect pretty large exoplanets with a telescope like we do at our, our university. So we've basically, well, three of them are going to come to the university and do observations by themselves, and I'm going to guide them through that. Um, they have to create their own programs and code that will reduce the data, um, and then hopefully they'll detect an exoplanet. Um, they write in a report, and that's their final science uh, high school report, I guess. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, and then the fourth one has is using a telescope in the USA instead. So um, she wanted to use that one instead, and she gets a bit more control over it. Um, and yeah. Anna, our producer, is helping her a bit more with that as well. Oh, that's so, really cool. Yeah. I'm so jealous. I wish someone had done that for me. Back oh, in the days. I would have killed for something like this when <laughs> I was a high school. But yeah, I guess the you can't pay things back in time, but you can pay things forward. So maybe these people mm-hmm. will then motivate the next generation and we'll have more people doing really fun, cool science in the future. Um, but, you know, that's us. What about this giant volcano that's, that's just spewing lava? Like, um, I don't know about you. Do you also get messages from your friends and family? So is this even safe there? Oh, my, And then yes. you send them pictures back. Look, I'm looking at the volcano right now. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. So I, um, I have purposely not been sending any pictures to my parents uh-huh, until this. Yes, And this will come out after um, we're back. So then I, there's a problem there. But I do get updates um, from my dad with news articles about mm. uh, the volcano and... Um, yeah, and so I don't tell them about you know, the ash falling from the sky and covering the ground in black because they'll probably get worried. But, you know, sorry, Mum, I love you. Um, but, you know, that's the, the long and short of it. But it was it's really cool because I've done a few hikes on this mountain. Like, yeah. you know, living on a mountain, you, it's not just all about the science. So um, there's a really cool trail that takes us directly to almost an uninterrupted view of this volcano yeah. from a safe distance. Um, 
And basically, yeah, what, what did you think when you saw lava for the first time? Oh, I was first a bit disappointed when we went up before yeah. sunset mm-hmm. and there was just like this ash cloud coming out of the volcano and I was just there like, oh, is this everything? Yeah, this yeah. looks a bit boring. And then after sunset, when it actually started to sort of glowing yeah. because you could finally see the lava, I was like, wow, and it's just flowing yeah, down. Yeah. And it's like just the volcano spitting it out. So it was really impressive. Yeah, because you like the only thing I've ever seen lava is like in movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, movies you get it right pretty good. But to see lava for your own, with your own yeah. eyes, that was, um, it was special. Also especially was the earthquakes that we've been having. <laughs> I think it's so funny that Jens sometimes doesn't feel them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, these were quite impressive as well, I would say. Yeah. During the night when you just wake up, you're like, something is shaking. And then you're like, oh, it was another earthquake. You know? Yeah, exactly. You just sort of shrug it off and go back. Um, and like, getting used to it. Yeah. Um, they don't last very long. They're like a few seconds. Um, it's almost like, you know, a ride at a theme park, basically. But... um. Mm. Yeah, it's weird to think that, like, yeah, the the ground isn't super stable and, like, you know, I've, like, in Australia, we don't really have earthquakes because the country's on a big tectonic plate. So, mm-hmm. you know, New Zealand is the lucky, the, not the lucky ones, I would say, but the people who get uh, receive those. But mm-hmm. so, yeah, I guess there was a lot of firsts that happened in this trip. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, it's been opening, uh, like mind opening, I guess. Also, the rooms themselves here are pretty weird, right? Like, you've got, they're like, I have never been in a darker room before yes. in my entire life. I should really get those blinds for Sweden in the summer. Yeah, yeah, that would be, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then you have night whenever you want to. But, like, they're, these are the reinforced shutters that run on motors that completely block out the night. Yes. And so you'll wake up and the sun will rise and it's still perfectly dark. Um, and you have no idea how late it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you're like checking your phone and then you're like, oh, i got to get up. But I guess because these are designed for the fact that astronomers sleep during the day. Um, and so it's weird how like we're, we're, not, we're not built to sleep during the day. We, we, that's when we go up and you know, we do stuff. We, you know, back in the day, we'd, we'd go gather fruit or hunt um, for stuff. But now it's, yeah, we... We're able to completely change our world so that we make us more efficient in um, the nighttime. So, like, we've had a lot of downtime. Like, what is like La Palma like? Like, what would you, if you were to give like a tourist kind of oh, a tourist kind of view? Thing. Okay. Yeah. So, I think being really lucky that we can actually stay on the mountain during this time. Yeah. I think we're we're really lucky with that. But I would say if you if you look at the view that we have from here you can really see to to Tenerife yeah. you see to the other islands you can see very far as it is and then you also have yeah i don't know how to really say it but i grew up in switzerland for me so mountains are not something i have never seen before but yeah. after having stayed in sweden for a year i'm basically sorry to all the swedes not seen any mountains yeah. <laughs> just baby hills um I'm actually really happy to be in the mountains again and also taking the trips with the car. I really love driving a car, as yep. you might have realized. Yes, yes, I, <laughs> you're really good at driving the car as well. So so for me, it was really, really nice also to go on an adventure. Yeah. So we went to this northern part of the island. Yep. And we went to this lookout point and it's just incredible when you see the waves yeah. really crashing into the into the rocks and it was really, really nice. Yeah. And you like, like it as well? Oh man, we've we've watched so many sunrises and sunsets, like it's you really get to give that quota. But like it's <laughs> it's another thing to watch the sunset behind the clouds. Like you don't yes. Yeah, it's like 
it's it's it, all the light scatters off and there's this pink stuff and then like the sun becomes this really pink circle um for lack of a better term and like you just sort of watch it go down and wearing sunglasses but like it's and i don't know you it's so calming and like we watched it last um last night actually with uh, the whole group sort of like we're at a cafe uh, we're at a restaurant and then we sort of just watched it just drop below the horizon and like it i don't know it was nice because you not only was it for you but you were sharing it um mm. with everyone else and like yeah i think we being here and having this time just to like relax but also we have been we have been working it's the mm. it's been nice to sort of appreciate where we are we're not just staring at the sky we're also enjoying the mm. the the earth that we live on which is also a pretty cool planet that said we are this is our last night before we have to observe again so how are you feeling about that i'm definitely gonna try to get as much sleep in as possible during yes. that night but mm-hmm. that shouldn't be a problem i guess yeah um i think we have to go over our observation material again yeah in order to just check whether all the the things are submitted and are prepared for for tomorrow yes also, I would say that um, we have to look again at what exactly the times are for the transit. I re- yep. remember that the transit starts earlier, so we'll have a bit of more of a rush in the very beginning. Yeah, that's true. But I think we're super prepared, and we have been through this now once, so it can only become better, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. We know what to expect, and um, yeah. And I think Sarah is also, again, um, going to work, and she's agreed to be interviewed too, so we'll get to have her on the podcast, which is going to be really great. Um, um, so, yeah, and like we've looked at the weather forecast, it does say clouds, but looking outside, the clouds are below the mountains. So that may or may not be the case. But I think whatever the case is, we'll try. Um, we'll try to get data, and we'll make it make it work if we can. And you know, and we'll live with the consequences. Keep regardless. our fingers yes. crossed. Um, but I think regardless of the fact that we've had a really great trip and well we get a bit of holiday after this too oh, so yes. yeah gotta enjoy the sun before going back to dark sweden yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh the darkness yeah thank you for taking the time to talk today thank again. you it was really cool talk to you soon Wow, that was quite an adventure you have there on La Palma. I wish I were on a beach right now. Yeah, yeah, me too. But Nick, you actually never told me the answers for the uh, for the April Fools. No, I didn't actually. So um, I'm a yeah. bit scared. A bit scared. <laughs> um, okay, so so I had for the first one. Yes. Um, we had a day on Venus is longer than its year. Mm-hmm. Jupiter's gravitational pull protects us from meteorites. Yeah. And Neptune's clouds are pink. Yeah. And you picked Neptune's clouds as pink as the lie. Yeah. Um, that's actually false. Oh. So if you Google um, Neptune's clouds pink, you will see that occasionally um, they have pink clouds coming forming. How come? Um, I think it's to do with the methane. Um, so you get methane nice. clouds forming. Okay, but wait. So that means that Jupiter is actually throwing meteorites at us or? Yes. So that is the truth. So a lot of people think sure. that Jupiter is a comet catcher and actually yeah. follows it. But yeah. actually what it does is it destabilizes a lot of the outer meteorites in our solar system and they bring them in whenever they get close and so because mm. it's so heavy it pulls things in and in uh increases the impact rate so um uh-huh. yeah um i was pretty surprised when i learned that too mm. um okay so the second one is you could fly a spaceship through the sun's upper atmosphere mm-hmm. elements fuse in stars because it's so hot mm-hmm. um and our sun is made up of tiny pieces of not tiny pieces just pieces of other dead stars <laughs> yeah and i guess here i picked that you could you could you can't really fly a spaceship through the sun's atmosphere, but mostly based on that, I think the other ones are true. 
Um, so actually, you can fly through mm-hmm. the sun's yeah. upper atmosphere. So, yeah, I guess the solar orbiter that I mentioned. Yeah, yeah, it is actually flying through it. So we say that the sun's temperature in its upper mm-hmm. atmosphere is like over 10,000 Kelvin. It is even hotter. It's a really hot place. Yeah, but yeah. What people don't actually realize is the pressure is so low that there's, the gas particles are flying around quite a lot, which increases temperature. Mm-hmm, but yeah? <laughs> there's not that much gas to begin with. Mm-hmm. So you're pretty much flying through empty space. Um, and so the, their temperature actually isn't really any, have a, doesn't really have a right. physical meaning there. Um, sure. So you could technically do that. So actually, elements don't fuse in a star just because they're hot. Mm-hmm. Um, they fuse because of an effect called quantum tunneling. Right. So okay. Like, yeah. You don't, you, don't, you don't seem happy with that answer. <laughs> well, of course you're right. I actually didn't think about quantum tunneling when yep. you when you post this in the beginning. But isn't it like... Because, you know, it's not like we have fusion taking place here in this room just because of quantum tunneling. That's true. You, have, you need to have some higher temperature to... Yeah, you know. I guess. Yeah, that, <laughs> that is true. All right, so you make a good point. Um, so the idea is obviously you have a lot of particles which are really close together at high pressure and mm. then that creates a very large temperature. Sure, sure. Um, but like... Uh, most uh, atoms repel, repel off each other mm. by the by Coulomb uh, repulsion. Yes. And so for that to actually... Basically like having two positive magnets towards each other. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, and so to really push these things together so that they fuse, you actually can't do that without quantum effects occurring mm. um, where sometimes particles can randomly move um, distances. Yeah. Um, and so that causes the fusion to, yeah. um, to occur. But I will digress. It was a bit of a vague question. So, um, <laughs> no, but it's true. It can't, it's just not because it's hot. Yeah. Um, so. and it's probably one of the reasons why fusion is such a difficult question to solve is mm. when we're trying to solve it on Earth as well. Yeah. Okay. So then the last one was space between stars is just empty space. Mm. The furthest we've ever traveled in space is still in the solar system. And most stars and planets that we observe outside the solar system are signals sent to us thousands of years ago or hundreds of years, as you've um, said for some... Longer time ago. Yeah, a long time ago. The false answer in that one was the space between stars is just empty space. Ah, I got one correct. (laughs) (laughs) But I think this was very nice, Nick, because it actually shows that this is a bit tricky and also there are cool stuff happening in space, right? Yeah, it's a really cool fun facts. But obviously, yeah, it's also quite complicated too. So it's sort of... It's difficult unraveling the secrets of the universe. Yeah. Well, with that, should we sort of wrap up this episode? I think so. Yeah. So so our guest today was Michael Way from NASA. Mm-hmm. And we also heard from you and Bibi yep. at La Palma. Um, and if you have any questions or comments about the show, feel free to reach out to us via emails or via the Lund Observatory account on Twitter. And our theme at the beginning of the show, we can the members of the research school that Astronomisk Ungdom held here at Lund Observatory last summer. And make sure to tune into next week's episode where we will have Colin Carlyle crossing our meridian, talking about his way into astronomy. Thanks for listening.